Hey guys, this is Mike Winger. I just want to give a quick message to the podcast community. First, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Uh, We're still kind of new doing this podcast thing. We're trying to get regular with the updates and things like that. And uh, your downloads and your reviews and stuff like that, they really bless me and they really do help. Now, what I wanted to tell you is what you're about to listen to. It needs some explanation. Um, Online, on YouTube, I did a... 20 part video series working between me and two other YouTubers, meaning I made like seven videos, another guy made seven videos, another guy made six videos, and we made 20 videos responding to 20 atheist arguments against God. There's a particular atheist YouTuber named Hemet Meta, and he made these 20 arguments against God. We made short videos responding. Okay, so that's like the background. What we've done, though, for the podcast is we've crammed all these videos into one big podcast. So what you're about to listen to is each of those videos one at a time. You're gonna hear the argument from the atheist and then the response from either uh, Capturing Christianity or What Do You Meme or from me, Mike Winger. Those are the three YouTube channels that work together. Now, I may not answer these questions exactly the same as the other guys will answer them, so you're gonna hear kind of different approaches to things, but we thought this would be a useful resource to have online and a useful resource to put on the podcast. So there's the explanation. That's why you're gonna hear different voices and it'll sound a little bit odd. But I hope it's useful for you. Have a great day. Hey everyone, I'm Cameron Bertuzzi and you're watching the first video of a playlist of videos responding to 20 arguments against God's existence. Here is the first argument. There's no evidence. We start this series off with a little bit of irony. What evidence does Hemet give that there's no evidence? There's no evidence. Saying there's no evidence is not the same thing as showing there's no evidence. So if theism can be dismissed that quickly, I mean, so can this first argument. The second point, even if it's true there's no evidence for God, that doesn't necessarily mean that God doesn't exist. You might have heard the saying, absence of evidence is not necessarily evidence of absence. So before we found evidence for the Big Bang, for example, that didn't mean that the Big Bang didn't happen. The fact that we lack evidence really only means that we lack evidence. That's all that it means. So in other words, even if it's true, that there's no evidence for God, and I'll talk about that in a moment. It doesn't necessarily follow that we have some kind of argument against God's existence. But the real issue here, and this is my third point, is that there's plenty of evidence for God. I mean, we don't even have to call it real evidence. We can call it candidate evidence. By candidate evidence, I mean data and phenomena that professional philosophers have argued counts in favor of God's existence. I'll repeat that. By candidate evidence, I mean data and phenomena that professionals have argued counts in favor of God's existence. So this would rule out any kind of like banana argument you might have heard from your pastor or your friend. No, the arguments that I'm talking about as candidates are those that have been submitted by professionals in cosmology and in physics and philosophy, and they've submitted these to journals for peer review. So here's just a couple examples of the type of candidate evidence I'm talking about. The first one is the universe itself. There's got to be some reason why our universe has billions of galaxies instead of billions of slimy triangles. And you can't actually use the universe itself to explain this. That'd be like explaining the existence of a chicken in terms of the chicken. I mean, that's circular. So the question we face then is, well, what type of thing could create the entire universe? God could. And some philosophers are actually arguing right now. I, In fact, I interviewed one recently for our podcast, is that only a being like God, in other words, a perfect being, 
only that kind of being would be a sufficient explanation for the entire universe. And keep in mind, this is just one piece of evidence. I've actually discussed this with another atheist, Cosmic Skeptic. You can watch the video there. It's got it either on this side or this side, whatever. The second piece of evidence, uh, philosophers have argued that the fact that we can even trust our brains at all to produce accurate beliefs about the world is evidence for God. Third, they've argued that the order and fine-tuning in our universe is very, very strong evidence for God. Fourth, they've argued that the fact that our universe can actually be discovered by science itself, oh, and that it's also written in the language of mathematics, is evidence for God. Fifth, professionals have argued that beauty is actually evidence for God. Then there's the argument from miracles and the argument from consciousness. The list of candidate evidence is actually pretty long. So here's an analogy I want you to think about. Wouldn't it be kind of silly if I was making a video 20 arguments against evolution and started out by saying, well, there's just no evidence. Like, would anyone take me seriously or would any serious person take me seriously? I doubt it. What you'd have to do, like any honest human being would, is deal with the best evidence for that position. So here's my fourth and last point. The entire case for Christianity is not built on like one little tiny piece of evidence, but it's actually a convergence of many different types of evidence, like in metaphysics and ethics and cosmology and physics and so on. And basically, the idea is that all of these evidences point in one direction. As homicide detective J. Warner Wallace notes, quote, most of my cases have relied on the cumulative nature of evidential inferences, end quote. And my point is that the same is true for Christianity. I mean, what else would you expect? So in summary, Hemet, rather ironically, gave no evidence that there's no evidence. To paraphrase Christopher Hitchens, what can be asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence. Second, since absence of evidence isn't necessarily evidence of absence, this isn't necessarily an argument against God's existence. Third, it's actually dishonest to say there's no evidence for God without at least ruling out some of the candidate evidence. And fourth, a cumulative case for Christianity can still be built even if each individual piece of evidence won't convince you on its own. Hey everyone, I'm Cameron Bertuzzi, back here with the second video in this playlist of arguments against 20 arguments against God's existence. All right, here is the second video in this playlist. God doesn't stop the evil in the world. In fact, if you read the Bible, God committed plenty of it. All right, so this argument is actually two arguments. The first one is that God doesn't stop the evil in the world. And the second one is that God has committed evil in the Bible. In this video, I'll explain why neither of these arguments actually work. The first argument, again, is that God doesn't stop the evil in the world. How is this supposed to be an argument against God's existence? I mean, let's look at the logic here. So step one, God allows evil. Step two, therefore, God doesn't exist. I mean, anybody can see that step two kind of comes out of nowhere. So as presented, the argument doesn't even get off the ground. But we can take it a step further. I mean... How do we know that God doesn't have a reason for allowing evil? We don't. One of the best reasons that theologians have offered is what's called soul building. Soul building says that without evil, we'd actually be losing out on the greatest goods. Have you ever forgiven someone that hurt you or had compassion on someone that was in pain? Now ask yourself, in a world with no evil in it at all, would you have been given the same opportunities to exemplify these goods and develop your character in these unique ways? The answer, of course, is no. So here's what I'm getting at. Taking away evil in the world actually means taking away the greatest goods. Now, you might be thinking that these goods 
pale in comparison to some of the bads in the world. You might be wondering, well, how does forgiveness outweigh child cancer? Now, I happen to think that humans in general are just really bad about weighing goods and bads with all the emotions involved and everything, but let's put that worry aside. Let's just assume that we can't think of a good answer to this question. Does it follow now that God doesn't exist? Still no. All that means is that we have a gap in our knowledge. That's it. Saying, I don't know why God allows child cancer, but surely God has a reason, is a completely legitimate answer. After all, there is a limit in what we can understand, so we shouldn't expect to know everything. So the gap between God allows evil, step one, and therefore God doesn't exist, step two, is actually really big. All right, let's go back to the second claim. The second claim is that God committed evil acts in the Bible. Now, if Himmet had actually mentioned one of these, we could have taken a closer look. But since he hasn't, I've got to give more of like a general response. So let's list out the steps again, just like we did for the first claim. Step one, the Bible depicts God as committing evil acts. And then step two, therefore God doesn't exist. I mean, again, step two kind of just pops into being out of nothing. God's existence doesn't depend on how we interpret the Bible. I mean, maybe our interpretation is false. So let's assume the actual worst case scenario that some passage in the Bible, again, we don't have specifics, but some passage in the Bible depicts God as evil. Does it now follow that God doesn't exist? Of course not. All that would be required is for the Christian to develop a more nuanced interpretation of that particular text. This is why arguments against the Bible are not really good arguments against God's existence. When I point this out to skeptics, and actually a lot of Christians respond this way too, is they'll give a kind of slippery slope type argument. Like, if we can't take this verse literally, then why should we take any of the Bible literally? First, there's no reason to think that a more nuanced interpretation of the Bible is actually going to be less literal. There isn't one single literal interpretation of the Bible. There's actually many literal interpretations. And so for all we know, maybe the more nuanced version is actually the more correct literal version. Second, it's important to remember that the Bible is not one book. It's actually a collection of books. And as such, it features a bunch of different types of genres of literature. There's historical narrative, wisdom, poetry, ancient biography. So a historical error in Deuteronomy, for example, doesn't mean that we should start to question the historical reliability of Mark or that we have no idea what's meant in the Psalms. Keep in mind, I haven't actually agreed that the Bible depicts God as evil. I took the worst case scenario and showed how even then it doesn't show that God doesn't exist. To sum up, neither of these two arguments are actually arguments against God's existence. God allowing evil doesn't mean that he has no reason to allow evil. And even if some interpretations of the Bible depict God as evil, all that's required of the Christian is to adopt a different interpretation. It doesn't follow that the Bible has an error, nor does it follow that God doesn't exist. Hey everyone, I'm Cameron Bertuzzi and you're watching the third video of a playlist of videos responding to 20 arguments against God's existence. All right, let's get into the third argument. Drowning just about everything alive? Not a sign of love. So we're already three videos in and two out of the three are arguments against the Bible. They're not actually against God's existence. And I mean, the third argument actually isn't even an argument against the Bible at all. It's against one interpretation of a couple of chapters in the book of Genesis. And I mean, you can't even say that it's against a literal interpretation of that text because there are many different literal interpretations. And to make matters worse, Hemet doesn't even think a global flood even happened. Right? I mean, he's an atheist. So... I'm wondering how an imaginary event can be evidence against God's existence on his view. Now, look, I get that he's trying to give a kind of like internal critique for Christians, but an internal critique for Christians is not an argument against God's existence. At the very, very most, this is an argument against one group of Christians 
that hold to one particular interpretation of a couple chapters in the book of Genesis. That's it. Worst case scenario means that the Christians in question would have to adopt a different interpretation. Now to be clear, I don't think that Hemet's argument, if we can call it one, accomplishes that. He hasn't actually argued that God could have no moral reason for using a global flood. So this is neither a serious argument against God's existence, and it's not a good argument against the global interpretation of the flood. Alright, with that out of the way, let me take a couple minutes and talk to the Christians that are watching this video. There's a really great book that came out recently called Understanding Scientific Theories of Origins. Pretty awesome book. I mean, it's also the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Chapter 13 in the book is dedicated to understanding the flood account. They conclude, the authors in the book, conclude that we actually don't know from the text what the scientific dimensions of the event were. One of the reasons for this is that the two Hebrew words kol eretz, which gets translated all the earth, are used hyperbolically elsewhere in scripture. I'll give two examples. First, kol eretz is used in Exodus 9.4 where it says all of the livestock in Egypt died in the plague. But we know that the author is using hyperbole because later on in Exodus, the people are actually called to bring their livestock in from the field, meaning that they all didn't die. So even though the text said that all the livestock died, that didn't actually happen. The author was using hyperbole. Second, in Genesis 41.57 we read, quote, And all the world, which are the same two words here, kol eretz, came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe everywhere. End quote. However, no one reads this verse thinking that like Mayans or Eskimos came to buy grain. What these two verses do is show that the words kol eretz can be used hyperbolically. And in fact, the authors in the Old Testament often used hyperbole when describing these sorts of epic events. But what about the wording in Genesis 7.20 where it says that the waters covered the mountains by 15 cubits, which gets converted to about 20 feet? The authors point out how the actual sequence of words in Hebrew reads like this, quote, 15 cubits upwards, the waters surged and covered the mountains. End quote. So if we're taking this passage like as literally as we can, all that would mean is that the waters rose 20 feet up the sides of the mountain, not that it was covered by 20 feet above. And here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the global interpretation of the flood narrative is false. To quote the authors again, quote, If words mean different things, we need to explore these possibilities because one of those possibilities may be what the author intended. End quote. What we were taught in Sunday school may not be what the Hebrew authors actually meant to say, and as truth seekers, we should be open to these scholarly possibilities. In summary, this is not in any way an argument against God's existence. At very best, it's an argument that we should adopt a different interpretation of the flood narrative in Genesis. But since Hemet never actually argued that God couldn't have a moral reason for using a global flood, this is not an argument against a global interpretation of the Bible. Oh, and so for any like skeptics that are still watching this, I'm not arguing that a global flood happened. I'm saying that Hemant's argument, as in the way that it was presented, it fails. That's all I'm saying. This is the argument I'm handling in this video. The opening lines of the Bible are factually wrong. Why should we believe the rest of it? Now, I'm not going to be able to cover everything in Genesis 1 and 2 and all the way through Genesis 11 today. One day I hope to come to that in my online content. Right now, let's focus on the opening line of Genesis, Genesis 1.1. It is far more profound and meaningful than most modern readers realize. It says in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this is a profound claim. You see, it doesn't say universe, but that's because in the Hebrew, there's no word for universe there. What they do is they use the phrase heavens and earth to talk about the universe. 
So the subject is the whole of a whole of creation, all of the universe, and it says something about it, two things, right? That it had a beginning point, that the universe had a beginning point, and that God is the one that brought it into existence at that beginning point. So let's not miss the profound implications of Genesis 1-1. The universe, according to the Bible, the opening line of Genesis, had a beginning, a very first moment, and it came into existence out of nothing. This is what we call creation ex nihilo, out of ex nihilo, nothing creation out of nothing. The ancient cosmologies of the time didn't agree with this. This was like a uniquely Bible thing, right? Modern people don't realize how controversial this was even more recently. Uh, Gregory L. Neighbor, in his book, Space, Time, Singularities, and Introduction, he said the following, throughout all of human history, the universe was regarded as fixed and immutable, and the idea that it might actually be changing was inconceivable. See, this can be seen as like a scientific prediction from the Bible that went against both the science of the day as well as, for thousands of years, the consistent belief of science up until very recently. See, something has totally changed, and the Bible was actually proven right on the opening line of Genesis. In the first half of the 20th century, scientists changed their minds because of Einstein's equations about the general theory of relativity, combined with Friedrich and Lemaitre's model based on those equations, combined with Edwin Hubble's discovery of like background radiation and the Doppler effect of light shifting red and all this kind of stuff. The point is this, that whether you are looking back and saying, we think the universe has all these miracles resulting in its current existence, or if you try to apply a naturalistic model to the universe, either way, you're forced to a beginning point. That's, that's the thing. No matter what side of the aisle you're on when it comes to miracles, you have to say that the universe came into existence out of nothing, and we don't know of any cause that could have done this, apart from something that was, I don't know, spaceless, timeless, immaterial, all-powerful, something a lot like God. Physicists John Barrow and Frank Tipler said this, at this singularity, that's the moment when all this stuff came into existence, space and time came into existence. Literally nothing existed before the singularity. So if the universe originated at such a singularity, we would truly have a creation ex nihilo. That's in their book, The Anthropic Cosmological Principle. All of this information combined together with plus philosophical arguments for, which is another video altogether, <laughs> for the, um, the impossibility of a past eternal universe. This basically says, hey, that first line of Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that's very consistent with what modern science has discovered against the expectations of thousands of years. So in this case, the opening lines of Genesis are in fact right. Now let's zoom out and remind ourselves of exactly what's happening in this video series. Hemant Mehta is trying to say, here's reasons to believe God doesn't exist. So this particular challenge from the friendly atheist fails on two counts. On one count, if you were to show that something was wrong with the text of scripture, it doesn't mean God doesn't exist. And two, at least for the opening line of Genesis, I think I've demonstrated that there's good reason to think it actually went against, this, against the thinking of the time and affirmed real true things about reality. And so I find that to at least be somewhat impressive. Now, what we do with this information, when we find out that the universe has a true beginning out of nothing, this is a profound piece of evidence in an argument for God's existence that I'll be talking about in a later video in this series. This is the fifth video in a playlist of videos responding to 20 arguments against God's existence. All right, let's get into the fifth video. Prayer has never fixed anything physically impossible. Why won't God heal amputees? All right, so this one's kind of interesting. So first he says that prayer has never fixed anything physically impossible. And here he's thinking of like a limb growing back. But how does he actually know 
that prayer has never fixed anything physically impossible. Like, what is the actual argument? Some atheists think that the famous Benson study on intercessory prayer sort of proves that prayer never works, but this is completely false. As Richard Swinburne points out, the people in the study were actually, I'll go ahead and quote him here, praying in order to test a scientific hypothesis, end quote. So in other words, they weren't praying out of genuine compassion. They weren't praying for the right reasons. And he actually goes on to say, quote, The negative result of the Benson study is entirely predictable on the hypothesis of a loving God who sometimes answers prayers of genuine compassion, end quote. So this study actually doesn't prove anything about the efficacy of prayer. Second, as Dr. Craig Keener notes in his massive two-volume work on miracles, restoration accounts of limbs are rare, but they do get reported. In one of these reports, a leg, like, severed below the knee grew back. And in other reports, shriveled limbs sort of, like, miraculously filled out and started to work again. Now, I'm not saying that these accounts are true. They may be true, they may not be true. My point here is that while restoration accounts of limbs are rare, they definitely get reported. And I mean, these are only the reports that we know about. You know, there's probably countless others that we don't know about and will never know about. So going back to the original question, how can we trust what Heman is saying if he hasn't actually refuted any of the existing accounts? So, I mean, on the face of it, this looks like a pretty straightforward case of begging the question. So after he concludes, for reasons unknown, that prayer has never fixed anything physically impossible, he then asks why God won't heal amputees. And there's, I mean, there's a lot of problems with this, but the first is that it's a loaded question. As I've already noted, restoration accounts of limbs do get reported, and so just like asking why they don't happen is question begging. Secondly, questions are not arguments. Asking why God won't heal amputees is not an argument against God's existence. It's really just an admission of ignorance. This brings me to my third point. Why are atheists so fixated on God healing amputees. Like, if something is truly miraculous, then it doesn't matter if it's a limb growing back or cancer leaving someone's body, it doesn't matter. A miracle is a miracle. Maybe these amputee-obsessed atheists are thinking that every other type of miracle report can be easily explained away, but that's false. Just look at the resurrection. The best explanation that atheists can come up with is that everybody that saw Jesus, even the groups that saw Jesus, were hallucinating. Unless someone went back in time and gave all the disciples a bunch of oculuses, they didn't have any group shared experiences of Jesus together. Didn't happen. Hallucinations are like dreams. You can't, like, invite your friends to come have a dream with you. I mean, if every other type of miracle could be easily explained away, you'd think they'd do a better job of explaining away, like, the primary miracle in Christianity. Last point, even if Hemet could somehow show that prayer has never fixed anything physically impossible, that is not an argument against God's existence. At most, this shows that God is not a puppet that we can control with strings. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was asking for the cup to pass from him, he said these famous lines, Not my will, Lord, but yours be done. Jesus knew that what's best for us isn't necessarily what we will, but what God wills. To quote Richard Swinburne again, and I mean, who doesn't love listening to Swinburne quotes? Quote, God knows far better than we do whether it will be best for that person and others affected by him that he should recover immediately or later or not at all. End quote. To sum up, the famous Benson study on intercessory prayer doesn't show anything about the efficacy of prayer, much less about the existence of God. And asking why God won't heal amputees, Hemet is simply assuming 
that God has never healed amputees, but that's obviously question begging. And even if he weren't begging the question, which he obviously is, this is not an argument against God's existence. God is in a unique position to know exactly what's best for us, even if from our limited perspective, it might not seem like it. All right, let's go. There are thousands of gods you don't believe in. What makes yours any different? So for this to be an argument against the existence of God, like the title claims that it is, then there has to be a conclusion that says that God does not exist. So in other words, whatever he says could reasonably be followed by, therefore God does not exist. In its current form, the argument goes like this. There are thousands of gods that you don't believe in. What makes your God any different? Therefore, God does not exist. Okay. So, Hamad, you know, like to start, you got to check your premises, bro. Because like, I mean, if you're going to make an argument, you got to at least make sure that the conclusion follows from the argument. I mean, the way you got your argument kind of formulated right now is kind of like, okay, think about it this way. What if a husband said to his wife, there are thousands of women that you don't believe I cheated on you with. What makes this one any different? Therefore, women do not exist. In the same way, even if I had no answer to what makes my God any different, it wouldn't follow that, therefore, God does not exist. All that would follow from that is that I have no good reasons for believing in the God that I believe in. But if God exists, he still exists no matter what I believe about him. Even if I believe that he didn't exist, he would still exist. But my guess is that this dude's probably smarter than that. He probably knows that it wasn't a good argument punt in that form. I think what he's getting at is that if a believer took all of the reasons why they rejected all of those other thousands of gods and they applied those same reasons towards their God, then it would force the believer to reject their God as well. Now, that's not an argument to show that God doesn't exist, but I guess it's somewhat an argument to make somebody doubt their personal beliefs or something like that. If that's his point, then let's go ahead and try it. So let's go ahead and start with some of the reasons why I reject the other thousands of gods, and then we'll go ahead and try to apply those same reasons towards my God. I believe that there's really good reasons to believe that the true God would have to be eternal. So that leads me to reject all of the gods who had a beginning. Bye, Thor. Bye, Zeus. Bye, all of those random gods that atheists like to point to when they say how there's so many gods. Bye. I also believe that there's really good reasons to believe that the universe is not eternal. So that led me to reject all of the concepts of God that in some way or another claim to be one with the universe. Bye, pantheistic gods. Smell you later. And lastly, I also believe that there's really good reasons to believe that God revealed himself through Jesus Christ, and this was further established by Christ raising from the dead. And this has led me to reject all of the other monotheistic religions that claim that Christ did not raise from the dead. Bye Judaism. Bye Islam. Toodles. I obviously don't have time to flesh out all those reasons here, but I have done so in other videos if you're interested, as have Mike and Cameron. But I hope you catch the relevant point. Even if we didn't have good reasons, the point would be the same. Remember, the argument was if I took the reasons why I rejected all of those other thousands of gods and I applied those towards my God, then it would force me to reject my God as well. But if I applied those towards my Christian beliefs, rather than forcing me to reject the Christian God, it actually gives me reasons to accept Christianity and to reject those other gods. So what makes my God any different? Well, the fact that he's real and because I have good reasons to believe that he is. Now, because this argument wasn't much of an argument and say it was just kind of like a rhetorical question, I did my best to try to restate his argument. Now, if you think that I'm wrong or that I missed the point or that his argument could be stated in a better way, then go ahead and leave that down in the comments. And if enough people agree with it, then I'll go ahead and do a video on it responding to all of those interpretations as well. 
What is this devastating argument that is going to turn me into an atheist by the end of this video? <sighs> I'm terrified, shaking in my boots. Just go ahead and hit me with it. Let's do it. Where you're born essentially determines what you believe. Why should the truth be based on geography? Oh. Wait, that was an argument? That was an argument to show that God does not exist? Okay, hold on. Okay, so if you're just jumping in and you haven't been following this playlist, then in the last video, I explained how if this guy is going to claim that these top 20 arguments are against the existence of God, then what he says should be able to be reasonably followed by, therefore, God does not exist. Otherwise, it's not really an argument. So in its current form, the argument would be where you're born essentially determines what you believe. Why should the truth be based on geography? Therefore, God does not exist. Okay. Who's an atheist now? Any, any, no? We're not all atheists yet? Okay, okay. I'll be charitable. So what exactly is his point? Does he mean that on average people tend to inherit their religious beliefs from their parents? If so, then he's right. Now, how does that show that God does not exist? To make his argument a bit more clear, I think the basic argument goes something like this. People believe things based off of where they're born. The truth is not based on where you're born. So therefore, your beliefs are not true. And if you thought about it a bit more, it probably goes something like this. People believe things based off of where they're born. The truth isn't based on where you're born. Therefore, your beliefs are not true. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Oh, wait. Oh, no. If I say that, then the same thing would also apply to virtually everything else I believe in, because in one way or another, Everything that I believe is based off of what my culture has passed on to me. Hmm. Okay, let's, let me try this again. So, people believe things based off of where they're born. The truth isn't based on where you're born. Therefore, your beliefs are not true. But, this is only true when it comes to religious beliefs, of course. <laughs> yeah, that's good. What? Oh, crap. I have beliefs about religion, too. Alright, let's edit this. Okay, okay, I think I got it now. Now I got it. People believe things based off of where they're born. The truth isn't based on where you were born. Therefore, your beliefs are not true. But only when it comes to religious beliefs that are at odds with what I believe about religion. There. All right, that's better. Done. This argument's awesome. And you get my point. If beliefs that are based on where you were born or where you grew up automatically make those beliefs false, then it would make all of his views false as well, including his views about religion. At this point, he'd probably be saying, well, no, no, no. I've thought about my views. I've considered the arguments for and against them. And this is why I hold the beliefs that I have now. But why would he assume that we haven't done the same? Because he says so? or because he doesn't like our reasons that we give, or because he disagrees with us. At bare minimum, thinking things through and giving reasons and evidence and arguments for the reasons why we believe in Christianity is why channels like mine and Cameron's and Mike's exist in the first place. Even if you believe that our reasons and our evidence stink, well, you're wrong, but that's still beside the point.
The point is, if it makes your beliefs legit because you took the time to think about them and consider the evidence, then that would also make our beliefs legit as well. And it doesn't really matter if you think that the reasons that we give are bad, because we could say the same thing about yours. Your reasons are bad. Where does that get us? Now, I gotta remember, I already said that I was gonna be charitable, so in the spirit of charity, let's go ahead and consider the best case scenario for this objection. The absolute best case scenario for this objection is that Okay, it's true. This only applies to religious beliefs and every single person that holds a religious belief, they're incapable of changing their minds or changing their beliefs due to rational reflection. And the only reason that they have for holding their beliefs is because of where they were born. That's the best case scenario. But even if that was the case, it still wouldn't show that their religious views are false. All that it shows is that they haven't thought their views out well. That's it. For example, I could come to believe that the earth is round because I was eating my alphabet soup and it spelled the word round. And then I looked outside and I considered the earth and I believe that it was a sign from the aliens to tell me that the earth was round. Now, even though I had a really dumb view for coming to believe that the earth is round, I would still be right. The earth is round. Likewise, even if every single Christian was only a Christian because of where they were born and they had no reasons and no justification for holding those beliefs, could Christianity still be true? Well, of course it could. What's up, everybody? I'm Cameron Bertuzzi. You're watching the eighth video in a playlist of videos responding to 20 arguments against God's existence. With that out of the way, let's get into the eighth video. Who created God? And how does your answer to that make any sense? No one created God. I mean, this video literally could have ended after about 20 seconds. No one created God. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it makes, it makes perfect sense. Now, I think this question actually does raise a more interesting question. Namely, if no one created God, then why not just say that no one created the universe? What's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. I'm definitely too young to be using that phrase. Anyways, this is the argument that him at should have used. So here's how Christian philosophers normally respond to this. God's being uncaused follows from a more fundamental property that he has, namely perfection. God is a perfect being. And it's actually incoherent to ask what created a perfect being. And I'll give two quick reasons for this. First, anything that could create a perfect being would have to be more perfect than perfect, but that's impossible. Second reason, whatever can be created can also be destroyed, but anything that can be destroyed in other words, anything that is fragile isn't perfect. In the case of the universe, however, there's nothing at all incoherent about asking what created it. Sometimes skeptics and atheists respond to this by saying that Christians are sort of specially pleading for the God of Christianity or their God in particular. They're just sort of making up properties about their favorite concept of God and then saying that it's uncreated. But why can't we do that for the universe? Why can't we just make up stuff about the universe and then call it uncaused? Remember the claim is that it's actually incoherent to ask what created a perfect being. Now, on the other hand, is it incoherent to ask what created the universe? And the obvious answer is no. Why? Well, here's one reason. If the universe began to exist, then it must have a cause. So if we have good evidence for a beginning of the universe, then the universe has to have a cause, and it's not incoherent to ask what created the universe. 
And at this point, you might be wondering, well, why think that the universe has to have a cause if it began to exist? The answer to that is that anything that begins to exist has a cause. I mean, you began to exist, right? I, I mean, I'm assuming you haven't been here forever. And you have a cause, right? Sure, you might think. But why does that apply to the whole universe? I'll give two quick reasons for that. First, there's no, and this is, I guess, a little technical, there's no relevant difference between individuals and groups when it comes to needing a cause. So for example, this lens that I'm holding has a cause. Well, what about when I have two lenses? What if I had a billion lenses? Would the need for a cause suddenly vanish if I start to add on more stuff? Not at all. And the same reasoning applies in the case of the universe. Just like we need an explanation for a billion lenses, we need an explanation for the billions of particles that make up our universe. Second reason is that everything in our experience that begins to exist has a cause. And that's about as good empirical evidence that you can get of anything. So for these two reasons, it's pretty safe to say that if the universe began to exist, then it has a cause. But why can't we just say that the universe has been here forever, that it's eternal? So putting aside whether or not like the evidence actually points that direction, let's just go ahead and assume that the universe is eternal. Does that make it literally incoherent to ask what created or what explains the universe? Not at all. Assuming you have one, take a look at your smartphone. I mean, you know that your phone hasn't existed forever, right? But just let's let's pretend that it has. Doesn't it still seem obvious that this thing has some kind of explanation for why it exists? Like, why does an eternal smartphone exist instead of an eternal computer? Why does it have the shape of a smartphone? Here's another more like technical way of asking this question. The category smartphones has at least one member in it. But the question is why? Why does it have one member? Why isn't it not just empty? It seems perfectly possible that it could be empty, so why isn't it empty? Saying the phone has existed forever is just sort of saying like, well, the category isn't empty. But that doesn't explain why it's not empty. And so now ask yourself, are any of these questions that I'm asking like literally incoherent? Do they lead to some kind of contradiction? Not at all. And so it follows that the universe and a perfect being or God are not on par when it comes to explanation. To summarize, we saw that it was really, 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 really easy to respond to Hemet's original argument. Who created God? No one. Does that make any sense? Yes. So then we looked at a more interesting, more philosophically interesting question. If no one created God, then why can't we just say the same is for the universe? First, I argued that it's literally incoherent to ask what created God. And then second, I argued it's not incoherent to ask what created or explains the universe. What argument do we have today that proves that God does not exist? What argument are we going to consider today that proves that God does not exist? Let's go ahead and hear it. Hit me. No, I meant hit me with the next objection. Pediatric cancer. Okay, that was a very short argument. Let's hear it again. Pediatric cancer. I think I got this one. So the argument is because I can't think of any good reason why God would allow children to have cancer, therefore there couldn't possibly be a good reason, right? Okay, got it. Now, believe it or not, and I'm genuine when I say this, this video is actually a breath of fresh air. And the reason I say so is because the last two videos that I did in this series were not clear at all. It was pretty hard to see how it led to, therefore God does not exist. But in this video, it's a lot easier to understand. The argument is basically because God allows children to have cancer, therefore God does not exist. As usual, and because I'm somewhat of a nice guy, 
somewhat, somewhat of a nice guy, then I'm going to go ahead and make this argument better than it actually is in its current form. The argument in its strongest form that I'm aware of would be something like, if God exists and he's all loving, then he wouldn't allow bad things to happen to innocent children. Bad things happen to innocent children like children getting cancer. Therefore, God cannot exist. All right, story time. So for those that don't know, I have the most incredibly adorable two baby boys on the entire planet, right? Right now, they're five months old and four years old. And I just love, 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 love my boys. When it came time for me to take my oldest boy to the dentist for the first time, I did what any dad would do. Rather than putting them through torture and having them hate me, I told my wife that she had to take them. So when that didn't work, I ended up at the dentist's office sitting there with my boy. And as usual, the dentist comes in and the dentist tries to make him happy, tries to make him laugh. And he just was not having it. He was just terrified of the dentist and would not chill out for a second to let the dentist start licking inside of his mouth. So at this point, he starts screaming, he starts crying, and he starts reaching for me. And instead of me reaching for him, grabbing him, and taking him from the dentist, instead, what I had to do was actually hold him down so that way the dentist can continue to look inside of his mouth. Not only could he not understand why I didn't save him when he's reaching out for me, but he also couldn't understand why I actually held him down and allowed him to suffer. And for me, it was really kind of difficult at this point to be straight up with you. And the reason why is because... I wanted him to understand, but I knew that there wasn't anything that I could say that he could understand. I mean, he was barely, um, you know, kind of getting through basic language at this point. He just couldn't understand the language or even these big concepts of the greater good. Now, in a similar way, I don't see any reason why it couldn't be the same with God. If God created the entire universe and he knows everything, everything there is to know, then he would also know how everything must go together for the greater good, even if we couldn't see it or comprehend it. And just like my son, who was too little to understand the greater good, how much more would it be for an infinite God that knows literally everything? Therefore, we couldn't possibly know all of the reasons for why God allows suffering to happen. Now, I should probably make this clear because I know how the internet gets. The comparison is not between the dentist and having cancer. That's not the comparison. The comparison is just to highlight how limited our minds are and our limited cognition. That's all. But if you really think about it, sometimes in life, we are able to see the greater good that comes from suffering and we see how it made us better people. A lot of people would say that even though they went through something absolutely horrible, they wouldn't take it back for anything. And they say the reason they wouldn't take it back is because it made them better people and it made them who they were today. Now, I'm not saying that that happens in every case, but that's one example of how we can see good come from suffering that otherwise couldn't be achieved if that suffering was not there. With that perspective in mind, how does it follow that if bad things happen, God does not exist? The only thing that follows from if bad things happen would be that we don't know the reasons for why God would allow bad things to happen. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't exist. And lastly, I just want to say the fact that greater goods come from suffering is especially evident on Christianity. So why does God allow suffering? I don't know. But what I do know is that on Christianity, the answer can't be because he doesn't care and he doesn't love us. On the contrary, God actually lowered himself to become a victim of injustice and violence on earth. And what did he do when he came to earth? He suffered. In Christianity, the greatest conceivable good is when God actually took on human flesh and came into our world to provide a way for us to be rightly related to him. And he did that through suffering. So the reason why there's suffering in this world can't be because God doesn't care, at least not in Christianity. So far in this series, I guess it's safe to say that I haven't been too impressed with these so-called arguments against the existence of God. But maybe, just maybe, this next one could change my mind. You guys ready? Let's go. Unconditional love shouldn't come with a list of conditions. <laughs> 
How on earth is that considered an objection against the existence of God? I mean, <sighs> let's play it again. Unconditional love shouldn't come with a list of conditions. Do you love your children unconditionally? Then let them play in traffic. No, why not? I thought you loved your children unconditionally. How dare you impose those conditions on your children? But really, is it unloving for me to give my kids conditions so they don't burn the apartment complex to the ground? If you gave a five-year-old everything they wanted and you didn't give them conditions, they'd be dead in a week. I'm actually happy this guy isn't running for governor or anything like that. Could you imagine? Imagine, imagine a, future a future full of hope, hope, hope freedom, freedom, and love, love, love where, there's, where no there's no conditions. No conditions. No conditions. Where you can do you can anything. anything. You can even you can murder, murder and eat people. people. Those darn Those kids won't stay off your lawn, lawn? shoot them with a BB gun. gun. No conditions. And if the parents refuse to cooperate and things get really nasty, you burn their house to the ground. Imagine there's no conditions. It seems easy if you don't try. Welcome to a bright, loving, and unconditioned future. Does that sound like a guy you'd want in office? And you thought Trump was bad. So obviously, giving conditions is not opposed to love, but let's just say for the sake of the argument that giving a list of conditions is unloving. Now, how many conditions does God give us? Anyone? Class? That's right, just one. The only condition is accepting his free offer to pay for the wrongs that we ourselves did. That's all. Is it unloving for God to give us the choice if we want to accept them or not? No. The unloving thing to do would be for God to force us to accept them. But maybe I'm overreacting. Maybe I need to be more open-minded like those skeptics always seem to say. So, you know what? I'll give it a shot. For the next hour, I'm not going to give my kids any conditions at all. Any conditions. <laughs> that actually reminds me of the movie Big Daddy. If you haven't seen that movie, there's this funny scene where he's like, I'm trying out this new parenting thing. And then he's like, Chase, put, put that iron down. The iron is hot. It can burn you. Put that iron... Okay, never mind. Never mind. Do what you want. Okay, so so anyways, there, there's this scene. Oh my goodness. Uh, if you're not already in the playlist, go ahead and click on this link. I gotta go. Why did you let him do that? Dad, I said I can do yeah I want. Call the fire department. But I was just trying to be unconditionally loving. Oh. Thanks, atheism. Here is this short argument against God. I'll be responding to it right now. Every single supposed miracle gets debunked eventually. Okay, to this, I, I don't really know exactly what to say, but let's think it through. Okay, the claim that every single supposed miracle gets debunked eventually is being used as a argument to say, therefore, you shouldn't believe in God. But let's think it through. Uh, my first thought as I hear this argument is just like, Really? Um, this is not a statement of known fact. This is a prediction based upon a prior belief. What am I saying? I'm saying this is circular reasoning. The, the, the idea that every supposed miracle will eventually be debunked is a statement of faith, of belief, based upon assumptions. It's, that's exactly what circular reasoning is. You see, how can I assume every miracle is false? Well, if I assume there is no God and no supernatural to cause the miracles, then I can assume they're false. So then I can assume that they'll be debunked eventually anyways. This is just circular reasoning. 
it's kind of strange because I know that in the production of this video, Hemet Meta would have sat down and had a list of arguments and thought them through and tried to pick the best ones he had, 20 that he thought were of quality and of value. I know if I'm presenting you know, arguments for God's existence, I vet them. I bring the best I've got. And I certainly try to avoid things like circular reasoning. It's one of the worst things you can do in an argument is actually have circular reasoning. Let me analyze this further because... Maybe he just thinks this is common knowledge, and maybe you do too. Maybe you're watching this video going, Mike, everyone knows miracles don't really happen. Everybody knows this. I would say that that's not common knowledge. So let me give you some statistics that will help support what I'm saying here. In 1992, there was a Gallup poll that uh, found that 82% of people in the U.S. believe in miracles today. Only 6% of people at the time said that they held Hemant's position that categorically rejects that miracles can happen, right? That miracles do happen today. Um, no adjustment to this data, no little you know margin of error is going to bring that six percent close to a majority or or certainly a consensus. This this is definitely circular reasoning to say that everyone simply knows that miracles don't happen. In fact, it's quite the opposite. In two thousand three Newsweek poll, seventy two percent of people in the U.S. said that they believe that God may cure a mortally ill person for whom science has surrendered hope. According to the landscape survey on pewforum.org performed in 2007, it says among those who rarely or never attend church, the majority believe that miracles probably do occur. So these, these are not like these just, just going church-going Christians. We're talking about rarely or never go to church. Even among that group, the majority think that miracles do occur. 34% of U.S. residents claim to have witnessed or experienced divine healing. 34% saying that their eyewitnesses or personal experience says, I, I've experienced a miracle. So you would have to just assume that they're all cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, that they're all just, you know, you know, dummies, basically, in order to affirm what Hemet Meta assumes in his circular argument against the existence of God here. Every single supposed miracle gets debunked eventually. Well, he's, he's almost alone in that personal opinion right there. Um, for further research, I recommend you guys take a look at uh, Craig Keener's two-volume series, miracles. This book series has lots of examples as well as working through philosophical objections to miracles, that sort of thing. And, um, and I think it's a really interesting, interesting book that I'm kind of working my way through at the moment myself. But let me give you one example of a miracle which has not been debunked. And it's kind of central to the Christian faith. You see, it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, some skeptics are going to roll their eyes at me when I say this, but the thing is, the evidence is really good for the resurrection of Jesus. There is a well-constructed argument from history that gives evidence for the resurrection of Christ that can't be explained away by any other theory in a rational way. In fact, this is one of the strong pieces of apologetics that we bring to the table today. I love the evidence for the resurrection. I think it's powerful evidence for a miracle that has not been debunked. So I would say that in this complaint, Hemet has made an assumption done circular reasoning, he's ignored the evidence. And I think he stumbled upon one of the best reasons to be a Christian. And that is, we have good evidence to say that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead. It's compelling. It's impressive. It's thoughtful. And it's well-researched. And it's scholarly. And I encourage you to check it out. In fact, the only reason to not think that Jesus' resurrection is the best explanation of the evidence would be to assume that miracles don't happen. But then again, we have that problem with that circular reasoning. Unless you assume miracles don't happen, you should be affirming that Jesus rose. Now, I've actually made this case, and so have others in other videos. I recommend you do some research on your own and seriously consider the evidence for the resurrection of Christ. It's powerful. My final observation here is that um, this argument against God's existence is a position driven by faith. 
Um, it's just faith in the idea that God doesn't exist or that God just will never do anything. And that's why we're assuming that eventually we'll figure this out. We'll prove this wrong. It's like a naturalism of the gaps kind of argument. It's not really an argument against God. It's a result of not believing in God, thinking that that belief is a good reason for that belief, which is not a good way to come to a belief or a firm one. Here is the argument I'm responding to in this video. Somehow the Ten Commandments left off, don't rape people and slavery is not okay. Okay, before we get into the issue of the Ten Commandments, we've got to remind ourselves what this is actually about. This is supposed to be an argument against God's existence, why, why you shouldn't believe in God. I mean, if these things were in the Ten Commandments, would Hemant Meta believe in God? If the Ten Commandments had perhaps for number seven, instead of what it says now, it says, don't rape. Like if that's what it said, would Hemant believe in God? Or would he perhaps come up with another example of something that's not in the Ten Commandments? And then he would use that as an attack against God. Because I really doubt that these are actually reasons that someone would not believe in God or that someone should believe in God. The composition of the Ten Commandments is not evidence for God or against God in all reality. Okay, now let's get into the issue of the Ten Commandments. There's a weird assumption going on in this video. Uh, it's that the Ten Commandments are supposed to cover every single human behavior. I mean, the Ten Commandments have left off quite a lot if you really isolate them. For instance, it never says in the Ten Commandments not to throw your kids off of cliffs. It never says not to abuse your spouse. It never says not to hide your grandpa's teeth. Like it never says any of those things, nor did it need to. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments aren't the summary of the whole law. It doesn't mean God approves of those things. It's just not addressed. Really, this is like saying, because these commandments didn't address these issues, I don't believe in God. This doesn't follow logically. This isn't rational. Sometimes, I think skeptics, and if you're listening to me, skeptic, I think sometimes you feel so secure in your skepticism that you're not thinking it through. If you want to look at an actual summary of the Old Testament law, you can look at the summary we have in Galatians 5.14. And it summarizes, what is, the, what is the summary? What is the whole law saying? Galatians 5.14 says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's the summary of the whole law. Doesn't that encompass the issues that he's worried about? I think it does. In Romans 13, it gives us another summary. Oh, no one, anything except to love each other for one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So this idea is we love to fulfill the law. If you're looking for a summary statement, you can apply it to all kinds of issues, including the issues brought up in the objection about rape and slavery. And I have content online. If you want to dig into the Old Testament teachings on those issues in particular, I have content online that teaches that. But really, this complaint's about the Ten Commandments. Jesus himself agrees with this summary. In Matthew seven twelve. he says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. In Matthew twenty two thirty six, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? He is asked and Jesus's response. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And this isn't just New Testament. This is Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 and 5 is what Jesus is quoting. There is the summary of the law. To love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. In verse 38, he goes on. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law 
and the prophets. So we can interpret them through this lens of love, loving God first, loving our neighbor as ourself. And of course, if we want to get into the nitty gritty, the debate over the specific laws and situations of the Old Testament, which skeptics often like to use, in my opinion, out of context with an agenda to make the Bible look bad. Um, and I'm happy to do those debates. In fact, I've literally done them multiple times online. But again, Hemant Mehta's issue isn't with the entirety of the law. It's with the Ten Commandments. Oddly enough, thinking that them not including every possible behavior is somehow a case against God's existence. Now, on the other hand, I can say this. Love is an incredible ethic. Love is a beautiful ethic. The Christian moral value that, that, that supersedes all others is the value of love. Loving God first, loving your neighbor as yourself. Genuine love, not just this emotional stuff, but like the full, real qualities of love. Now, if I'm going to say that the ethics of the scriptures are somehow going to be used against God's existence, yet when I discover the ethic of the Bible is love, can I not perhaps use that as evidence for God's existence? Or is it a double standard? Evidence can only go against God, but it can't go for God. Interesting thing to think about. Keep in mind, this is supposed to be a reason why you should not believe in God. And this is the next one. The movies and music that honor God are just awful. And my first response is, wait a minute, this is supposed to be a reason to not believe in God? Like, your music is bad, your movies are bad, therefore God doesn't exist? Like, is that really the logic and the reasoning of this argument? I mean, it is. This is an argument against God from bad music and bad movies. Um, okay, um, so if I have good Christian music and good Christian movies, does that mean that God does exist? Challenge accepted. I present to you Johann Sebastian Bach. Bach is one of the most important composers in the history of humanity. Modern music in a lot of ways is still fashioned after him. And he did, he did more than just inspire a few Beatles songs, which he did. He actually helped flesh out the entire major and minor keys that we use in our music today. Britannica.com puts it this way. Bach is now generally regarded as one of the greatest composers of all time. Bach loved God. Bach would actually sign all of his music to God, committing it to him with the phrase soli deo gloria, or glory to God alone. Glory to God alone. He not only wrote a lot of overtly and outwardly Christian music, but he also liked to embed symbolism of Christianity within his songs. He liked to use the E flat chord to represent the Trinity. Scholars actually look at Bach's music just to find all the symbolism related to God and Christ and Christianity that he embedded in his songs. And he is, of course, considered largely one of the greatest composers of all time. Should we now consider this evidence for God? The world is full of art that's a result of people using their gifts in a desire to honor and glorify God. And Bach is just one example. So Hemet Mehta's uh, argument against God in this case falls on two counts. One, it's not factually true. And two, you can't prove or disprove God's existence by the quality of art in this, this, the Christian realm. Like, this is just weird. I don't, I don't understand this kind of thinking, you guys. I'm sorry. I'm not with it at all. But let me add a few more thoughts before I move on to the next question in this series. A lot of the secular music that you might think of as being godless and secular movies that you would consider really good art, really well done, have Christians behind them, have Christians producing them, Christians making them, and even in their hearts trying to do things that honor God with that 
art. This is not that uncommon. I mean, there aren't that many atheists running everything and producing all the content that's out there. It's just not the reality of things. We have believers in God who are producing this stuff all the time, every day. Now, it's true that when you get into the overtly um, outwardly Christian movies with Christian messages and Christian music with Christian messages that the market gets a lot smaller. So the funding is a lot lower and the distribution is a lot less. But as a guy that used to book Christian bands, I've seen incredibly talented people and seen, you know, short uh, artistic films and things like this done from Christians that were incredibly high quality. There just isn't much of a market, so you don't generally see it floating around out there. But there are certainly instances of it. Um, but people tend to have a market more for the uh, the less overt content. doesn't mean it's not being done for God's glory. But seriously, though, this is an argument against God's existence. Your art's bad, so your God doesn't exist. Like, I, I don't follow, and I don't think that anybody who thinks it through follows either. The reason why these are 20 short arguments is because the, the power of them only exists when you string them together and you throw them at someone really fast before they can answer because it leaves the impression of confidence and like certainty about your position. But when you analyze them individually, they just fall apart. And this is often the case with atheist complaints against Christianity or challenges to the existence of God. And here's the next one. The invisible and the non-existent look very much alike. Keep in mind that you're supposed to think, I shouldn't believe in God because he is invisible and because invisible things are so much like things that aren't existing that I should assume he doesn't exist. There's a problem with this, right? There's actually a lot of problems with this. First off, it's in the idea of look. Okay, invisible and non-existent things do look very much alike, but that's because of the quality of what things look like when they're invisible is that they're not visible. Like this is just to say invisible things are invisible. Okay, that's right, that's true. And non-existent things would also be not visible. Okay, that's also true. But you can't actually walk this argument any further. That's where the similarities end. Non-existent things are different than invisible things in that they have no causal relations in the real world. But there are invisible things which exist that have causal relations in the real world, like gravity. I don't see gravity. I can't physically see it. It's invisible, but it's definitely having a measurable impact in the world. Radiation's invisible, but it can still kill you, right? Whereas non-existent things, if it was non-existent radiation, is not going to kill me. If it's invisible radiation, I'm dead. And so these are these are just qualitative differences between invisible and non-existent things. Time is not a visible thing, but it's absolutely standing in constant impact with the world. You don't conclude, because you can't see time, that time doesn't exist. I mean, you've likely checked the time length of this video before clicking it because you thought it mattered and it stood in causal relation with you. So the question is going to be, has God caused anything? Has God stood in causal relation with the world? And I would say that the evidence for the inspiration of the scriptures, the evidence from the creation of the universe out of nothing, the grounding for moral values and duties, the various miracles that we have evidence for, including the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the philosophical arguments for God's existence, these things are based upon God having interacted with the world in a causal fashion. So God's nothing like non-existent things, but yes, he's not visible. So because God is not visible, he's not part of this creation in some observable, you know, directly observable thing. We observe him indirectly. We see design and we see beauty and we see, um, we, we see the existence of simply anything. And all this stuff is evidence for God's existence. It's indirect evidence. And it's still very powerful and very important. So saying that God doesn't exist because he's not readily visible 
I mean, this is like this is like saying people in wheelchairs don't exist because they don't leave footprints. Think about it. Like we don't expect them to leave footprints. That's the nature of them being in wheelchairs. So we look for different kinds of evidence than footprints when we're trying to identify them. So if I if I was able to put God in a beaker and observe him in that sense, well, that wouldn't even be God. Like that's that's obviously not God. Why? Because I was able to put it in a beaker and observe it. Like this is just simply, it's it's almost kindergarten level complaints against Christianity. Yet it's coming from Hemant Mehta, who's considers himself the atheist voice, the voice of atheism, at least in some circles online. And I think that it demonstrates something. It demonstrates that sometimes high up, the high up level of atheist apologetics, it seems to me, is sometimes really irrational stuff. Like kindergarten complaints against Christianity. Yeah, we think God's invisible. But invisible is not the same as non-existent. This is, this is just silly. Sometimes well-known, even well-respected atheists are coming with arguments against God that are just downright silly, just silly. And if you stop and think about them for just a few moments, you can see right through the problem, no pun intended with the invisible nature of things. So if you haven't been following the playlist, we've been covering 20 objections against the existence of God by the friendly atheists. And without further delay, let's go ahead and get to it. So what is this next objection? Let's see it. No hide and seek game lasts this long. What's so ironic about this video is something similar to this happened to me today. Now I know that probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense, so I'm just gonna go ahead and show you what happened. Here we go. Hey dad, are you up for hide and seek? Again? We always play that game though. Let's go do something else. Come on, please. Let's just go do something else. Please, Dada. You sure you don't wanna just... Case. Okay. How about we play it till you find me? Okay, well at least let's wait until... Okay, go hide! One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Here I come! I'm not hiding yet. Dada, I'll go find you! Hey, so I'm right here. Dada, I don't see you. But I'm not hiding. I still don't see you. I said not yet. I'm not playing hide and seek. I'm right here. Dada, where are you? Where are you? Here where I am. Where are you? Here I am. Dada, I don't see you. No hide and seek game lasts this long. How long is this supposed to last? As long as you have. But I'm not hiding. As long as I don't want to find you, this game will go on forever. This could go on for your entire life. Yep, my whole life. What am I supposed to say to that? What me? And there you have it. As long as you don't want to find them, you won't. Let's get into the 16th video. Science explains so much of what we used to attribute to a god. Here's my question. What follows from that? It doesn't follow that God doesn't exist. To reason that way is actually to commit the logical fallacy of composition. Just because science has explained things in the universe, in other words, parts of the universe, it doesn't follow that science is going to explain the whole universe. This would be basically like arguing that every part of an elephant is light in weight, therefore the whole elephant is light in weight. Now, sometimes reasoning from parts to wholes is legitimate. 
one can definitely like legitimately reason that if every brick is red, then the whole wall of bricks will be red. The problem here is that explanations are not like color. So let me explain that real quick. Every now and then I make my wife and I gourmet sandwiches, like legit gourmet. All of the ingredients in the sandwich have their own like place of origin, right? The bread is made in a bread factory. The meat comes from an animal. The lettuce comes from a farm. But do the explanations of the ingredients by themselves explain the whole sandwich? Not at all. I'm the one that created the sandwich. Unless you're an atheist, you're probably not going to think that the ingredients just sort of landed on the plate by chance. So similarly, even if every part of the universe has a scientific cause, it doesn't follow that the whole universe will have a scientific cause. That's actually to commit the fallacy of composition. Before I get too hungry, there's actually a deeper, more serious problem with this argument, and that it relies on a very controversial interpretation of probability, namely frequentism. And this is a little technical, so just bear with me for a moment. Frequentism says that the probability of an attribute A in a finite reference class B is the relative frequency of actual occurrences of A within B. And so here's what that means in English. The probability that A will occur is determined by how many times A has happened in the past. So for example, if I flip a coin, whoops, and it lands on heads 50 out of 100 times, the probability that the same coin will land heads the next time is 50%. Sounds pretty reasonable, right? Well, let's take a closer look at this. Suppose I have two coins now, a penny, and a quarter. On frequentism, I know that if I flip the penny again, there's a 50% chance that it'll land on heads. But what about the quarter? Well, I haven't actually flipped the quarter yet. So if we change the reference class to quarters and suppose that like no one else has ever flipped a quarter, what's the probability that I land on heads? Well, on frequentism, if you have no previous trials, the answer is either zero or one. In the literature, this is called the reference class problem for frequentism. The more detailed we get with our reference class, the less trials we have to work with, and the more generalized our probability becomes. And this is actually really counterintuitive, right? It seems like we can just base on the nature of this thing that it's going to be a 50-50 chance that I land on heads, even if no one has ever flipped a quarter before. Moreover, it seems like the more information that we include, the more accurate our probability should be. It shouldn't work the other way. And this is part of the reason why probability theorists have opted for different interpretations of probability, like Bayesianism, that don't rely on frequencies. Now let's think back to the original argument. The argument is that science explains so much inside the universe at a high frequency. But if we don't adopt frequentism, does it follow that God doesn't exist or that God probably doesn't exist? No. Last thing to note is that this actually is not an argument against Christianity, it's an argument against naturalism. Christianity predicts a largely stable universe. Now obviously, the Bible contains miracles, but these happen at very rare moments in the story. They're rare because God gave humans moral responsibility. And the only way we can actually be responsible for our actions is if we can predict the consequences of our actions. And this requires a stable, orderly universe. But what reason is there, and think about this, what reason is there to expect an orderly universe like ours on naturalism? There is none. There's infinitely more ways the universe could be chaotic than orderly. So the fact that we find regularity in nature at all is actually evidence for Christianity and evidence against naturalism. So this argument completely bites atheism in the foot. To summarize, 
This reasoning actually commits the fallacy of composition. Just because parts of the universe have natural causes doesn't mean that the whole universe has natural causes. Secondly, we saw that this argument relies on a very controversial interpretation of probability, namely frequentism, which can be, and probably should be, rejected. Lastly, since there's no reason at all to expect an orderly universe on naturalism, this observation actually confirms Christianity and disconfirms naturalism. Here's the next argument. The more we learn, the less reason we have to believe in God. Now on the surface, this argument seems rational, um, but I think it betrays um, perhaps an, a, a lack of awareness about some of the major issues related to the existence of God and to arguments for the existence of God. Because I would say that this is not only not true, it's completely upside down. The more we learn, the more reason we have to believe in God. Allow me to make my case. It is true that I, I don't look at lightning and think that each bolt is being miraculously caused individually by God in the moment against the laws of nature. I don't think that. And I don't think I'm supposed to think that as a Christian. But we have more thoughtful and sophisticated reasons to believe in God than we have ever had before. In fact, as science and philosophy and the studies of archaeology and history continue to flourish... We are actually adding to our arsenal of good reasons to believe in God. Let me give you some examples. The Kalam cosmological argument was, is actually an older argument, but it has been revived and altered slightly by the evidence that I've discussed in one of the other videos in this series. That is the evidence that the universe has a beginning. We already had philosophical reasons for believing the universe had a beginning, but, but now we had these really strong scientific reasons, and that came together with the philosophy so that we can use this idea that the universe had a beginning in an argument for God's existence that is very powerful and very profound. And if you're not familiar with it, I encourage you to, to familiarize yourself with it, the Kalam cosmological argument. Arguments from the fine-tuning of the universe. That is that the universe is so intricately fine-tuned, it bears evidence of design even in the constants and qualities that we see in the universe. This is stuff we didn't know a thousand years ago. This is stuff that modern science has been supplying to us as reasons to believe in God. Paul Davies, the physicist, puts it this way. There is, for me, powerful evidence that there is something going on behind it all. It seems as though somebody has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is over. Overwhelming. This is just one of the arguments that has been strengthened by the evidence that we've recently discovered. Alvin Plantinga's evolutionary arguments against naturalism is a newer argument for the existence of God that is quite profound and kind of a heavyweight argument. Arguments from intelligent design have been supported through the biological complexity of life at the micro level. This is the stuff that convinced former, famous former atheist Antony Flew to believe in a creator even after a whole career of saying God didn't exist. Why did he believe? He said microbiology convinced him that there was a designer for life. This is stuff we didn't have years ago. Studies in protein folding and biological complexity at the micro level. This stuff is powerful evidence of design. When it comes to the text of the Bible, we now have the ability to catalog, categorize, and cross-reference better than ever before. And this has helped an argument for the inspiration of the Bible, which is in the category of undesigned coincidences, which is something one day I want to cover on my channel. And by the way, if you show that the Bible has evidence for supernatural inspiration, 
that is evidence for God. So these are just some of the arguments that have been strengthened by the evidence we have nowadays that we perhaps didn't have as strong in the past. In addition to new and newly bolstered evidences for God that we have for modern science, we have classical arguments for God's existence that still have withstood the test of time. So if you're going to claim that the more we learn, the less reason we have to believe in God, that that bold, bold claim seems to be refuted by multiple examples from different disciplines and fields of research, things that we have recently learned that have bolstered us in our faith in God's existence, and rightly so. Sometimes I think that atheists are sustaining their atheism by never noticing or perhaps not thinking seriously about the evidence we have for God. This is why oftentimes they're able to say, there is no evidence, yet there is quite a lot, quite a lot. Welcome to the 18th devastating argument against the existence of God. I reckon that this one will make scholars everywhere take note. So let's hear it. If you try to explain your religious mythology to someone who had never heard it before, you would sound crazy. Seriously. Try explaining communion wafers to someone who's never heard of Catholicism. I see. So what's wrong with this argument? Well, to start, the argument seems to entirely depend on the faulty assumption that it's actually possible for me to care an insignificant degree less if people think I'm crazy or not. I mean, have you seen my videos? But to respond to the claim, so what if people think that my beliefs sound crazy? All beliefs sound crazy if you're not starting from the same set of background knowledge. For example, people who claim that Jesus never existed sound absolutely crazy to virtually everyone who understands or has the slightest clue of how ancient history works. Imagine talking to people who lived thousands of years ago and trying to explain to them that the earth is spinning at about a thousand miles per hour and it's actually going at about 67,000 miles per hour around the sun. You would sound absolutely crazy and that's just because they don't have the same background knowledge that you and I might have. But if that sounded crazy, what exactly does that prove? Could that prove that all of our scientific reasons for holding those beliefs are false? Well, if not, then we know that what's true is true, and that doesn't depend on whether or not somebody thinks that it sounds crazy or not. So background knowledge and background information is critical. So if the background information that's shared is that God doesn't exist, then of course somebody couldn't walk on water or turn water into wine. But if God does exist, then obviously it's possible that miracles can and do happen. So the whole cliques of those atheists who like to laugh and mock miracles as if like religious people believe these things happen by natural causes and by natural means, that only shows that they're really bad listeners. But if it's even possible that God does exist, the miracles are at least possible. So what do we do with this argument? Well, I think the bottom line is this. Remember, this guy's claim was supposed to be an argument against the existence of God. But this could only be an argument against the existence of God if it's true that if something sounds crazy to someone else, that makes it false. But your views are going to sound crazy to someone else. So obviously, you can't claim that something is not true just because it might sound crazy to you. Maybe the next objection's a bit more of an argument. Some people claim that if God didn't exist, the world would look the exact same way that it does right now. Is that a good argument? Or not? Let's see if my homeboy Mike Winger can handle this one. Here's the argument I'm answering in this video. If God didn't exist, the world would look exactly the same way it does now. This seems like a pretty powerful argument to some. I mean, to say, you know, get you to imagine the world the way it is now, and you just imagine it without God existing, and you're imagining it the same as it is now, and then you're shocked to find out that it's the same as it is now. Except it's only that way because you're imagining it that way. 
Would it really be the same if God didn't exist? This, I think, is again the worst, one of the worst possible fallacies you can have. It's circular reasoning. Allow me to explain. Because the argument assumes, right, if God didn't exist, the world would look the same as it does now. It assumes that. That's the statement of truth. It just would. It would look the same. And therefore, God doesn't exist. Except it's begging the question, right, that this hasn't been proven that the world would look the same as it is now. In fact, there's several things that I think would be quite different. Ah, but how do I prove that? I mean, really, this argument is just an exercise in, in you know, thinking about your assumptions. If atheism is true, well, then, yeah, everything will look the same. But if atheism is false and God did create all things, then literally nothing would exist if God didn't exist. So you have to assume atheism to get to this argument, which is an argument for atheism, or you can assume Christianity to reject this argument, and so we're getting nowhere fast. So the only thing I can think to do that might be profitable is to imagine the world if Christianity didn't exist, because that I can do, right? I can just imagine the world if Christianity didn't exist. Well, let me give you some examples of how the world would be different if I did imagine it this way. For one thing, my life would not have been changed. My life is absolutely changed by Jesus Christ. Now, some think I'm just making things up to share my testimony. No, my life was really changed by Christ in powerful and radical ways, permanently and completely. And that would not have happened without Christianity, right? That simply wouldn't have happened. Jesus wouldn't have raised from the dead. Certainly that wouldn't happen. I can say then Christianity just doesn't exist. Okay, this is, this is the theory. Christianity doesn't exist. Well, now hospitals and universities that were started in the name of Christianity also wouldn't exist which is most of the ones you're familiar with. Uh, my marriage certainly wouldn't exist. The Bible itself wouldn't exist, which means that Western civilization as it is wouldn't exist. And a lot of the, the advancements in modern science likely wouldn't exist. I mean, this would really change things quite a bit. Those who've stopped atrocities because of their religious faith in Christ wouldn't have stopped those atrocities. Now, you can assume that all this stuff is wrong, but if you actually take away Christianity it leaves a big gaping hole in the world today. Christianity is part of the reason why people are so literate nowadays. We've always been people of the book and of the text. So if you take away the Bible and you take away Christianity, then where is this motive for teaching literacy? I mean, it was churches that were teaching literacy to people at the beginning, starting schools and things like this. This would not have been the same. The impact of Christianity over time has been pretty positive and pretty good. Now, we're often familiar with some of the atrocities and some of the worst case scenarios we've heard. But when you back up and you take a global look at it, it's been a very positive impact and a very positive thing. But all this is just a thought exercise. And it's kind of irrelevant. Because in order to make this statement, you have to assume atheism is true to get to atheism. If you don't assume it, if you find powerful reasons to believe that God is required for morality and God is required for the resurrection of Jesus and God is required for the existence of the universe and the fine-tuning of the universe and the, and the, and the intelligent design inside biological creatures, th this becomes a pointless argument. Simply an exercise in one hand clapping, in, in patting yourself on the back. And so... Um, so far in these 20 arguments for God's existence, I haven't seen one that I find compelling. And not just because I'm a Christian, but because I'm looking at the arguments and I'm going, this is not compelling. I think there's something we can learn from this. I think frequently those who disbelieve in God do so because there's, there's a lot of mockery, misrepresentation, and shallow thinking about God and about Christianity in particular. I'm asking that you think a little deeper about these things and that you take them very seriously. Because these 20 arguments against God, 
aren't. Objection number 20 and the final objection to the series. So far, I'm not an atheist, but maybe he saved the best for last. Let's see. If God existed, he would smite me right now. I'm good. <laughs> That's a good one. So, did your challenge to God prove that he doesn't exist? Is God somehow obligated to do what you say just because you say it? God not becoming your personal puppet and striking you dead just because you say so doesn't necessarily mean that God doesn't exist. Perhaps there's better alternatives like, uh, uh, gee, I don't know. Maybe God wants to keep you around here so that way everybody can see just how painfully awful the arguments against his existence really are. I mean, think of all the soldiers saving. If that's God's plan, I think it's working. Those arguments were pretty bad. So keep up the good work. God's using you, buddy. But on a more serious note, out of all of these 20 arguments against the existence of God, how many of them can actually be reasonably followed with the conclusion, therefore God does not exist? If what he said couldn't reasonably be followed by therefore God does not exist, then they weren't arguments. Instead of arguments, all we really got was a guy just saying stuff. And his fans mistook him saying stuff for him actually giving arguments against the existence of God. I'm beginning to see somewhat of a trend of popular online atheists. They usually talk about how they follow the evidence where it leads and logic and reason led them to their conclusions. Because after all, they're not like those gullible religious people. But if these 20 arguments are vaguely representative of popular online atheism, then what we have is less about arguments and even less about logical and sound reasoning and more about feelings. They argue by selling people on feelings and emotions, not sound reasoning, not logic, and not facts. So why does this work? Well, it works because they're hijacking your emotions and making it sound intellectual. But in reality, they're not really saying nothing but stuff. What's ironic about this is this is the very thing they accuse religious people of doing. If you don't believe me, that's fine. I wouldn't expect for you to believe somebody just because they're saying stuff. I mean, I know you're smarter than that, but I want you to test this. The next time that someone gives you an argument against the existence of God, ask yourself, if what they said were true, would it follow that therefore God does not exist? Once you start to do that, I believe that you're going to start seeing what I see. But let's just say that you're still unpersuaded and you still find his arguments persuasive. Might I ask, what is it that you meme?